to all of us who have not seen the risen Christ, the Bible repeats the bold good news of Easter, that death could not hold Jesus in its power. Like Thomas and the other disciples, we live in the midst of trials and suffering, doubt and fear, disease and financial stress. Jesus' resurrection invites us to a resilient and intellectually strong faith that does not crumble with doubt or fear or suffering. Today we proclaim through this worship that life is our ultimate end and God's aim for us. It is through our faith we rejoice even now in our living hope, the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Good morning. Today is the second Sunday of Easter, and as such, today is our great opportunity to consider together the resurrection faith that forms our hope-filled community. I am Dr. Chuck McGathy, pastor of one of the oldest Christian churches in Rockingham County, North Carolina, the First Baptist Church of Madison. Our church helped found many of the churches in our area. We even were instrumental in starting the First Baptist Church in Greensboro. Now that church has grown much larger than our church, but this we share in common. We are both churches that partner with Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. Cooperative Baptists are partnering to renew God's world. God calls us and equips us to spread the hope of Jesus Christ to the least evangelized, most marginalized people on earth. Whether we're feeding the hungry, lifting up the voiceless, digging for water, or helping families get back on their feet after a disaster, we and those with whom we minister experience renewal. I just wanted to share a little bit about our church with you But most of all, I want you to know this about my church. We love and welcome you just as you are. We do that because we believe that God values all of us the same way. So it is our great joy to share this worship time with you right now, no matter who you are or what you believe. Our hearts are open And we welcome you to come along with us as we seek to know God better by loving one another without conditions. The Roman Catholic theologian Henry Nouwen captured my imagination years ago in this thought-provoking comment on the meaning of a genuinely hospitable welcome. He said, Hospitality means primarily the creation of free space where the stranger can enter and become a friend instead of an enemy. Hospitality is not to change people, but to offer them space where change can take place. It does not bring men and women over to our side, but to offer freedom, not disturbed by dividing lines. Listening is a form of spiritual hospitality by which you invite strangers to become friends, to get to know their inner selves more fully, and even to dare to be silent with you. I invite you now, wherever you are, to listen. Come into this hour with reassurance and comfort, but also with the deep intention to learn, to hear a divine word of challenge, and to grow your spirit. Today, we will share in prayer, music, and message. 
Some of what you hear today will be deeply thought-provoking. I unapologetically ask you to think about your faith. You may want to get a pen and paper ready. Also get a Bible and check out what I share from it. Mostly, let this be a time to encounter yourself, your world, and your God as you embrace your faith with all your mind. Let us begin as we pray together. Stand among us once again, risen Christ, and bless us with your greeting. Peace be with you. Stand among us once again, exalted brother, and breathe upon us your promised spirit. Stand among us once again, you who have escaped death, and give us new birth into your living hope. Amen. This morning, as you are in your safe place, I hope you are in your safe place, I'd like you to think for just a moment about someone else. I'd like you to think about the senior who is feeling isolated, lonely, and afraid. I'd like you to think about the young adult who is trying to deal with a new world that has turned their dreams into dust. Please try and think about the teenager who just gave up her prom and wonders what graduation will hold. And then consider the ones on the margins, those for whom life was already very difficult because of health issues, violence, mental illness, and financial problems before this pandemic made everything worse. Now think, what does God want me to do? Can I give some food or money? Or just make a loving phone call or two? Does God want me to work on my attitude, to grow my intellect by reading a good book or the good book? Is there someone I need to remember this week in prayer? What does God want of me? This is not a time for Christ followers to recede into self-absorbed pity parties, but to live out our resurrection hope, the hope that proclaims on the day of crucifixion, it may be Friday, but Sunday's coming. So we proclaim our confidence and faith through how we give away our lives. And we pray. God of great mercy, accept our offerings given out of what is more precious than gold, our faith in you, giver of hope and life. And through these gifts of ourselves, Reveal the risen Christ in acts of mercy, love, and joy. Amen. Now, before I forget, let me remind you that you can make comments, ask questions, make an offering to help support ministry in our community, get a copy of today's broadcast to share with a friend, or learn more about a community of faith where you are loved and welcomed by going to our website at www. FirstBaptistChurchOfMadison.org. You may want to call, and if you do that, please leave detailed contact information. Our phone number is 336-548-6112. I will repeat this at the end of the broadcast today so you can be sure to let us know you are listening. Before I begin a two-part message this morning, let's fill our hearts with rejoicing joy. The anthem this morning is a great hymn that asks an enduring question. Later in this broadcast, I will speak on the topic of the incarnation. The incarnation means made flesh, or in this context, like us. Through this song, the question is asked, 
Why did Jesus come to be with us, suffer like us, and die for us? Here is the First Baptist Choir singing Wondrous Love, arranged by Larry Shackley. This morning, I will read two different biblical passages. Each of these is worthy of an entire sermon. Both passages demand our complete attention on their own. Nevertheless, I'm going to include a reading from John's Gospel and then another written by a medical doctor named Luke. Luke wrote the first history of the church in a book called The Acts of the Apostles. These are two distinct works of ancient literature, but they both take time to address the same question. Can an intelligent person believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Now that may surprise some people. 
Some may wonder why that question is even raised in a book about a religious movement founded on the idea that its founder rose from the grave. It might even be a bit confusing. Many of us are accustomed to believing that there are two ways of thinking, and this belief seems to be common, a common way for many to evaluate the religious folk among us. In that view, one type of thinking is grounded in facts and secured to reality, but there is another kind of thinking that also exists. That kind of thinking is magical, wishful, fantasy-filled, and unrealistic. Far too many people think that that's all there is to religious thought. Consequently, people who are too religious are, by that standard of judgment, easily dismissed as a bit out of touch with reality. So let me begin this morning with a request. Let's begin by addressing those among us who are firmly grounded in reality and facts. This is for all those who believe that science is good and should be relied upon to help us live better lives. You do not believe something simply because you wish it to be so, but because facts and truth actually matter. I want you to know that I count myself among you. I also care about what is real, and furthermore, I recoil at religious and other forms of fakery that claim untrue things, deceive people, and quite often take advantage of the gullible. I actually believe that Jesus' followers were in this same mode of thought as well. So my first request of you is please do not assume that the person of faith is automatically a person who disregards reality and is disconnected from the truth. The second thing I'm going to ask of some of you is a bit of understanding. I need those who do not need any more proof than the way they feel in their heart to extend for folks like me a bit of grace. We do believe, and our faith is also strong, but we come at it in a way that makes sense for us. For us, it is not enough to believe with a trusting soul, because we also bring along a functioning brain. We do not check our intelligence at the door when we come into the church. You see, either our hearts and our heads enter at the same time, or they do not enter at all. So I ask you not to judge the natural doubters among us, but instead engage them with honesty and humility and hope. With that said, let me begin by reading from the 20th chapter of the Gospel according to John, an account of one who was just like me and maybe a lot like you. His name was Thomas. He was a disciple of Jesus, but he was also thoughtful and honest. He was not going to believe something that he knew to be unlikely. This is the story of how he came to believe. The day was Sunday, and that same evening the followers were together. They had the doors locked because they were afraid. Suddenly Jesus was standing there among them. He said, Peace be with you. As soon as he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. When the followers saw the Lord, they were very happy. Thomas was one of the twelve, but he was not with the others when Jesus came. He told them, they told him, we saw the Lord. Thomas said, that's hard to believe. 
I'll have to see the nail holes in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side. Only then will I believe it. A week later, the followers were in the same house again, and Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but Jesus came and stood among them. He said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. Look at my hands. Put your hand here in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to Jesus, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, You believe because you see me. Great blessings belong to the people who believe without seeing me. Now, I want you to notice that it wasn't just Thomas, often called Doubting Thomas, for whom the proof of Jesus' resurrection was necessary. It was just that when the evidence for his resurrection was displayed, Thomas was not there. Later, he would be convinced by the word of his friends. He would not be convinced by the words of his friends alone. He too would have to see Jesus with his own eyes, touch him with his own hands. I don't want to belabor this point excessively, but let me point out here that had Christian faith been founded on wishful thinking, this passage would never have been included. In fact, instead, the only basis of faith would be emotional. Instead of this story, we would read the disciples got together and burst into song singing, You ask me how I know he lives, he lives within my heart. Again, let me say plainly, there's nothing wrong with feelings and a heartfelt experience of faith, but that was not the basis of the original faith of the original followers. It came along later, I'm sure, but the place where their faith started was founded in evidence. They saw the nail-pierced body, and then they believed that he had risen. The story of Doubting Thomas is a well-known an often told story. Sometimes I've even heard a few misinformed preachers scolding Thomas as somehow flawed in his faith. Yet I am glad to know this much. Thomas, and as the passage also indicates, all of the original disciples were convinced because they encountered facts they could not dismiss. They were not of two minds, but one. Faith and fact were unseparated. One may or may not believe Jesus rose from the dead, but you cannot reasonably hold the position that his original followers simply wished he had been raised from the dead. That is an unreasonable and untenable foundation for a discussion about the beginning of the Christian religion. There is yet another example of early Christian thought that I'd like us to consider. This too is not a picture of a whimsical and wishful faith, but more closely resembles the philosophical arguments of wisdom that were the warp and the woof of the Greek, Roman, and Jewish cultures of that day. Just because these were ancient people does not mean they were stupid people. In fact, and every scholar of antiquity should know this, the ancient people were probably more disciplined in their thought life than most of the people we encounter today. Philosophers were valued players in their cultural context. In other words, intellectually speaking, many of them could run circles around our sloppy reasoning. Now hear me correctly. I want you to know that I do not say that to put anyone down. 
But I don't want any to think that simply because the ancient people lacked the same amount of information we have, that somehow they were intellectually inferior. That is simply not true. So with that in mind, let's move to a speech given by the Apostle Peter, wherein he reasons with his audience his argument for a personal faith. That is that Jesus died and then returned to life again. For Christians, it is not a fantasy, a happy conclusion tacked onto the end of a fable that ended so horribly with torture and death that our predecessors had to fix it up with an unbelievable ending. That is what many people think the story of the resurrection is all about, an invented twist designed to comfort the brokenhearted and beguile the rubes. That perception is prevalent not only now, but it was also a prevailing perception when Peter spoke about it before a skeptical crowd. Now, I cannot recreate that event, but I do think I can capture the basics of Peter's argument for the resurrection. It is essentially this. If God exists, and if God created the universe with fixed principles, then God may, if he so chooses, act outside the limits of nature. That God can do this does not mean that God did do this, but then again, he might have. Therefore, it is worthy of your investigation, your consideration, and perhaps your personal faith. There is not much debate in history on whether or not the early Christians believed that their Savior, the publicly executed Jesus of Nazareth, had physically returned to life. The fact that they did believe is indisputable. Their conviction that Jesus was resurrected was dramatically displayed during the huge gathering of Pentecost when Jewish pilgrims once again returned to the holy city of Jerusalem. Remember that the last large gathering in Jerusalem had been the Passover feast. None of those who had been in Jerusalem for that religious holy day could have missed the royal entry of Jesus into the city, the hasty and illegal trials, and the hurried execution of the Nazarene. Perhaps the returning pilgrim wondered if his or her visit to Jerusalem this time might prove to be less eventful. Maybe there would be more to learn about this story, this speculation about a would-be Messiah. Maybe they wondered whatever became of Jesus' followers. Had they disappeared into the woodwork? Had they been rounded up and imprisoned or even executed? What those pilgrims discovered, however, challenged all their expectations. I'm going now to read about their moment of discovery from the second chapter of Acts. One line from a sermon by Peter is very important for what I'm going to share this morning. I will cite that first and then read the entire passage in its complete context. Of Jesus, Peter says, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now listen to it in context. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. 
For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. In this scripture, there is a strikingly pointed claim about Jesus. God raised him up. After considering the words of Peter and examining the facts, many came to believe. They had eliminated the impossible, and what remained, though improbable, must be true. They then asked, what should we do? What should we do? Was asked by those who were inclined to believe several things. First, those who might ask, what should we do at bottom, acknowledge the existence of God. They believed in his care and provision for humanity. Not only did they believe there was a God, they had faith that God is both knowable and personal. He is involved in the affairs of humanity and even seeks a personal relationship with human beings. This was the baseline conviction of Peter's audience that day. Right here, we must pause to recognize that not everyone has that same starting point. Not everyone today believes those things. Some years ago, driving along the highway, I noticed a message on a trailer sign. It said, God doesn't believe in atheists. Now, honestly, I think that provocative statement says a whole lot more about us than it does about God. Perhaps God doesn't believe in atheists, but we sure do. We know them personally. They are our friends and kinfolk. And an increasing number of folks today are, in fact, speaking out about their doubts. Atheists, though, are not people of no faith. Most are, I believe, inspired in their faith, their faith that there is no God. Furthermore, quite often, atheists are responding to some ludicrous and even abusive arguments made by those defending God, as if God feels the need to be defended by us. I came across one of those this last week made by a prominent preacher in Dallas who actually said, and I'm quoting here, it is impossible to be good without God. I hope you see through the flaw in his theology. In case you don't, write me and I will explain in detail why that preacher gets his message muddled up. It is confused thinking. In that kind of hazy philosophical atmosphere, there is truly more smoke than fire. As a result, it is very hard to find an intelligent and meaningful debate on the facts of the resurrection. To be honest, I believe that most atheists are not actually atheists, but simply recoiling at the dishonesty and lack of love they witness from those claiming to be Christian. As human beings, however, we must choose in which direction our faith is best expressed. As part of our humanity, 
we all will encounter a philosophical fork in the road, a place where our knowing ceases and our postulation begins, prompting our faith as we choose the best direction ahead. Let's take a bit of a break now before we go to the conclusion of today's message. I'd like to share with you a bit about what is going on in our faith community. I'll begin by telling you all that Sylvia Perkins is feeling much better and will be returning to the office tomorrow morning. I sure have missed Sylvia, and I know she will be overjoyed to see all the work I've been piling up for her. Jane and Steve Scroggs are thinking about all of you and sure do miss getting folks together for choir practice. They are working on ways we can connect through the experience of sacred music, and I thank Jane for her help in putting this service together today. Our community is growing, geographically speaking. This worship, I know, is being heard in Texas, Florida, Alabama, New York, and Rhode Island. If you're tuning in from somewhere far away, drop me a line. It means a lot that you're joining our radio church family, and I'd love to know who you are and that you're joining us on Sunday morning. Teresa Wilson is now home from the hospital. She's feeling much better, but still thanks you all for your prayers. Also, a shout out to her friend Marie, who's caring for her. I do not personally know of any who have COVID-19, but I am hearing reports that say some may have it, but are not able to be tested. So best to stay home and stay safe as you protect yourself and others. Gwen Pigram sent me a cute poem, by the way, written by Christy Bother with a nod to Dr. Seuss. Remember the great story how the Grinch stole Christmas? Well, in this version, it's how the virus stole Easter. It concludes with this hopeful rhyme. Every saint in every nation, the tall and the small, was celebrating Jesus in spite of it all. It hadn't stopped Easter from coming, it came. Somehow or the other, it came just the same. And the world with its life quite stuck in quarantine stood puzzling and puzzling just how can it be. It came without bonnets, it came without bunnies, it came without egg huts, katanas, or money. Then the world thought of something it hadn't before. Maybe Easter, it thought, doesn't come from a store. Maybe Easter perhaps means a little bit more. And what happened then? Well, the story's not done. What will you do? Will you share with that one or two people or more needing hope in this night? Will you share the source of your life in this fight? The churches are empty, but so is the tomb. And Jesus is victor over death, doom, and gloom. So this year at Easter, let this be our prayer as the virus still rages all around everywhere. May the world see hope when it looks at God's people. May the world see the church is not a building or steeple. May the world find faith in Jesus' death and resurrection. May the world find joy in a time of dejection. May 2020 be known as the year of survival, but not only that, let it start a revival. I truly hope for everyone There is a sense of purpose and goodness that this current difficulty cannot diminish. Let your light shine as never before. Set the example of love and faith. Of course, staying home all the time is a difficult thing for some of us, yours truly included. So when you do go about among others, follow my example, wear a mask. I know what you're thinking. Why, Chuck? Why do you hide that beautiful face of yours with a mask? You are thinking that, right? Well, whatever you are thinking, 
We wear masks to prevent others from contracting this virus, a virus that we could have and not know it. So hi-ho, Silver, let everyone say of you who was that masked man or woman. Now let's continue on in our learning. The broadcast this morning addresses the question, can an intelligent person believe? I would like us to continue with that exploration as now we enter the second part of our worship. I think what disturbs me most is the idea that reason and reasonableness is characteristic of someone who does not hold faith in God. In other words, it would seem to some that you have two kinds of people in this world, the reasonable and the believers. But that is a false choice. In other words, it is entirely possible to be a person of both reason and faith. It is now necessary to ask this question. How was Peter's audience different than our audience? You see, to get to that question, what should we do to be saved? There must be a basic belief about God. For many in our current culture, the idea of God is an outgrown concept for unreasonable people. Some may even insist that no intelligent person today believes in God. But some extremely respectable thinkers challenge this premature dismissal of God. One example of this is seen in the great scientist Albert Einstein, who gave a reluctant assent to what he called the necessity for a beginning. Later in life, Dr. Einstein admitted, and I am quoting here, the presence of a superior reasoning power. Why would Albert Einstein claim such a thing within the scientific community that seemed more bent toward doubt than faith? It was because he examined the arguments openly and honestly. Let me briefly go over five traditional arguments that consider the existence of God. If you have not already made notes, this will be on the test. (laughs) I've always wanted to say that. But no, really, you may want to look this up later. The arguments are found in Augustine and further elaborated throughout history by such great thinkers as Thomas Aquinas. While they may be dismissed by some as old arguments and therefore invalid, let's consider each of these briefly and consider why it is durable and reasonable thinking to maintain a belief in the existence of God. Argument number one. This is called the cosmological argument. The cosmological argument asserts that the mere fact that the universe exists means something must have caused its existence. We say this because everything we know of in the universe is because something caused it to be. A crop of corn is because seed was planted. A mountain range is because great plates of the earth's crust collided to force uplift. And on and on we observe that everything has a cause. Therefore, the very existence of the universe must have a first cause. The cosmological argument attempts to prove that God exists by showing that there cannot be an infinite number of regressions of causes to things that exist. It states that there must be a final, uncaused cause of all things. This uncaused cause is asserted to be God. Okay, that is the First argument, the cosmological argument. Now for argument number two, the teleological argument. The word teleology comes from teleos, which means purpose or goal. 
The design of the universe implies a purpose or direction behind it. The idea is that it takes a purposer to have a purpose. And so where we see things obviously intended for a purpose, we may assume that those things were made for a reason. In other words, a design implies a designer. The radio or phone you are listening to right now was made for a purpose. It did not just come to be and found something to do. It was constructed with a purpose in mind, a teleos. If on a walk through a forest, you encountered a garden, you would reasonably assume there must be a gardener, though he is not present. Okay, so far we have the cosmological and teleological arguments. Now let's consider argument number three. That is the rational argument. We all know what it means to be rational. Perhaps I should parenthetically add, we also know how to spot something or someone who is being irrational. Well, in brief, the definition of rational is something that makes sense. The operation of the universe according to order and natural law implies a mind behind it. This reasoning is heard in the ancient psalmist's musings when he says, The fool is said in his heart, there is no God. He's not trying to be insulting as some who use this expression today. Far from an insult, the psalmist is inviting us into a moment of reason together. We all wonder about God, both believer and unbeliever. So this expression should never be employed as a club against atheists or agnostics, but should be viewed as an invitation for all of us to use all of our minds to weigh the arguments for the existence of God. Therefore, a rational person, according to the psalmist, would investigate rather than dismiss the existence of God without ample consideration. Argument number four is the ontological argument. In the ontological argument, reason is the basis for the existence of God. In other words, it is the very need of God itself that necessitates the existence of God. When we ask, is there a God, we affirm our nature was created by God. It is like us saying to the universe, God, are you there? And in some way hearing, I'm glad you asked that. Finally, argument number five. The final argument for the existence of God is the moral argument. Our built-in sense of right and wrong can best be accounted for by an innate awareness implanted by a higher power. Whenever we stop ourselves from doing wrong, though we know we will never be caught, whenever we do good, even though no one will ever know it, we give evidence for the existence of God. Tim Keller, a Presbyterian pastor in New York City, won the admiration and reluctant agreement of an interviewer who doubted God's existence when he reasoned it out. This is how he put it. In the end, no one can demonstrably prove the primary things human beings base their lives on, whether we're talking about the existence of God or the importance of human rights and equality. The philosopher Nietzsche argued that the humanistic values of most people, such as the importance of the individual, human rights, and the responsibility for the poor, have no place in a completely materialistic, godless universe. He even accused people holding humanistic values as being covert Christians because it required a leap of faith to hold to them. In the end, Keller says, we must all live by faith. 
Do these arguments prove the existence of God? No, that is not the point. These exist only to show that faith in God has a reasonable basis and that someone who believes in God can be a reasonable person. Put another way, let us not turn the psalmist words around to read, the fool has said in his heart, there is a God. Several years ago, I had the privilege of spending a morning with Dr. Henry F. Schaefer, one of the most distinguished physical scientists in the world. He asked an important question. He wondered why has there been such resistance to the idea of a definite beginning of the universe? Maybe that is not a bad place to start. If we can accept that the universe does indeed have a distinct beginning and a cause, and that cause is God, then our task is to decide if and how he will manifest himself to humanity. And that leaves us with two options. God is personal or God is impersonal. God cares or God doesn't care. Is it like the sentiment expressed in Randy Newman's God song in which God is described as laughing at mankind? Or is God different? Maybe God is passionately in love with his creation. At this point, it is important to understand the deist position. A deist contends that there is a God, but he is disconnected from the humanity he created. This God is frequently compared to a watchmaker who designs and builds and sets a watch, but then leaves it to run on its own. We know that many of our founding fathers were professed deists, but their ideas did not die out with them. There exist, I believe, many practical deists yet. They are those who are not ready to completely deny God, yet do not want to acknowledge any particular presence or daily involvement with God. In that definition, there are even deists in the church, those who willingly acknowledge God, but fail to recognize his personal interaction with them. They see their life's journey as pretty much up to them. Is that what God wants? I believe the answer to that is no. Deism must be challenged. You see, if there is a God, then would he desire to remain detached and uninvolved? Or is it more reasonable that God would desire to make himself known? Again, a faith decision must be made. One must ask, which is the more reasonable position? Have you followed all of that? Or at least some of that? Good. Now let me ask you this. Why is it that, speaking on the resurrection, I have reached all the way back to the very idea of God's existence? I did that because I believe that increasingly it will be demanded of Christ's followers to explain in a coherent way not only that they believe in God, but why they believe in God. So even if you find this kind of teaching difficult to follow, I want you to hear it anyway and know that there is a rational, moral, and intelligent argument for God's existence. The fact is we are now living in a world where more and more people are questioning the very idea of a divine being. I don't want you to ever accept the baseless argument that one position is reasonable and intelligent and the other is based on blind faith and foolishness. We don't have to give up the high ground as a matter of fact when it comes to the arguments. I believe that people who believe in God occupy the strongest philosophical position. For ultimately, those who claim there is no God must exert faith without explanation. 
Ours is faith with an explanation. We believe God does exist, but we also believe something else that is just as important, and it is this. God wants us to know that he exists. A relatively recent discovery of science puts forth the idea that the universe began at a specific point of time and expanded greatly and rapidly. You know it as the Big Bang Theory. Occasionally I hear some ill-informed preachers railing against the idea of the Big Bang as a challenge to their faith as proposed in scriptures. But they are 180 degrees wrong about that. In fact, the idea of the Big Bang actually affirms the Genesis account of the beginning. Most Christian scientists and Christian theologians are connecting the newest discoveries of science with the oldest propositions of theological truth as expressed in the scriptures. That ought to excite us. It ought to give us a new breath of air and a fresh wind in our sails as we recognize that God is so much bigger than we ever imagined. His creative act so much grander than we had ever before realized. But now we come upon an inevitable question. If there is a God, a creator God, then would he desire to communicate to his creation, specifically to you and me? Our spiritual ancestors who contributed to the collected works that are called the Bible believe that God did want to communicate with us. The witness of the Gospels is that God, in his ultimate act of communication, became one of us so that we might be able to understand who he is and how we might be reunited with him and one another. Imagine the enormity of that task. The infinite, everlasting, eternal God, the creator of all that is or ever will be, desires a personal relationship with frail, finite, mortal, flawed human beings. If you were God, how would you go about doing that? How would you interject yourself into this world so that people might be able to reconnect their souls with yours? This is a question that nearly every religion tries to address. For some, the answer is a set of philosophical principles. For others, a set of laws. For still others, the answer has been through specific rituals. All are trying in some way to bridge the gap between God and human. The idea that there is something that separates us from God, call it a moral weakness, a consistent failing sin, is not unique to our religion. Christ following it is unique in that it offers a different kind of solution. Instead of a series of philosophical propositions or maintaining a code of laws or even the performance of religious rites, the answer provided in the Gospels is the incarnation. The word incarnation comes from the Latin root, to be made flesh. Years ago, I heard the idea of the incarnation explained in a way that made a lot of sense. Think on this image. A boy is walking in his backyard one day when he discovers an anthill. A fallen tree has crushed the anthill. The ant's only home lay in ruins. As he studies the ants, he sees thousands of them scurrying around, trying frantically to restore what had been destroyed. Some were carrying the eggs, others were taking grains of sand to try to rebuild the hill, still others were removing bits of stick and other debris that had devastated their world. The boy has compassion on the ants. 
Somehow he identifies with their disaster. He wants to help. So he stoops down. He tries to help build up their anthill. He tries to direct the confused rescue of the eggs. He even tries to pick up the sticks and twigs that had destroyed the ant's home. But the only result is that the ants misunderstand. They began to attack the very hand trying to save them. And the boy is stung, but he runs away from the ant bed. While all of this is taking place, the boy's father observes the entire scene. Patiently, he goes to his son and explains to him that he is incapable of helping those ants restore their world. You see, they just cannot understand how he's trying to help them. Then he further tells him that if he really desires to help the ants, the only way he can do so is for he himself to become an ant and to join them in their suffering. According to the gospel story, that is exactly why Jesus became a human being, in order for us to understand and know him and to be restored to him. God had to become human. Just like us, he had to experience all that we experience. He had to know pain and sorrow and tears. And because God did that in Jesus of Nazareth, we have a point of reference that enables us to understand that God really does love us and cares for us and, yes, even sacrifices himself for us. This is what brings us into the scripture today. The Apostle Peter goes before his countrymen and says, All that you've been trying to do to understand God for all these years has been made known through Jesus. Now you can understand. Now you can make a choice. Now you can believe. But here's the catch. This new belief requires action. That action is called repentance. Repentance is an incredibly hard thing to do. It means that we must acknowledge that our course is flawed. We are going in the wrong direction. Our ideas, our presuppositions, and our actions must be changed. Oh, how hard we will fight to avoid such a moment. We will do anything to cling to that which we think we know and with which we are familiar. But our Lord demands that we give up that which has not worked, cannot work, and will not work. Instead, we are asked to reconsider. We are invited to listen to a new voice and test out new truth for our life. We're asked to believe. We're asked to believe in God. We're asked to believe God cares enough about us to become one of us. We are asked to believe that in Jesus Christ we may know and experience God. And we're asked to trust that his death was in our behalf so that we might be reunited with the same God who formed the stars and the moons, the universes, the molecules, the atoms, and the human soul. Then God promises something additional. He will in some way bond with us. He will enter the life that is willing to change and believe and follow him. The most ancient form of the word Christian literally means Christ inside. God has come to dwell inside every human soul. The choice is yours. It is a reasonable and intelligent choice, but it is the choice only you can make. The decision is yours. I invite you to welcome the God who has come in search of your soul. Pray with me. Eternal God, make me aware of your reality. Open my heart to your truth. Guide me into change. 
Help me believe. Express yourself in my life and my faith so that others too may know you are real. I place my trust in you. Amen. It is my hope and prayer that today your faith has been strengthened, inspired, and challenged as we have met. Remember that we love hearing from you, appreciate your gifts of support, and need your prayers as we love one another through a difficult time in our national experience. You can email me, learn more about our church, donate money online, and listen to this broadcast again by going to www.firstbaptistchurchofmadison.org. If you prefer, you can call our phone number at 336-548-6112. Please let us know how to reach you when you leave a message. This has been Dr. Chuck McGathy. Mama calls me Charlie from Madison's First Baptist Church. Oh, and never forget that in the end, there's nothing but grace. We'll end our worship today with the choir singing Amazing Grace, My Chains Are Gone. Arranged by James Coerts. Oh,